Hello and welcome to another episode of the Visual VC podcast. This podcast is your go-to resource for practical advice and insights on building, growing, securing funding for your startup. I'm Daniel Zaturansky, your host. And today, we have a special guest, Avery Schwartz. Avery is a partner at Greenfield Partners, an investment fund based in Israel and the U.S., Greenfield Partners specializes in backing early growth technology businesses. Avery holds board positions at notable startups and is known for his contribution and growth of the support and support of his portfolio companies. So get ready to be inspired. Avery Schwartz, an expert in the investment field, will share valuable insights on startup growth, funding, and the state of the current market. Let's dive right into the conversation with Avery Schwartz. Hello, Avery. How are you? Hi, Daniel. Thank you for that for that intro. We can we can only go downhill from yes, there. Yes, yes. But appreciate it's so it. exciting to have you on the show. I mean, we're trying to kind of uh, reach you for for a while, and now it is finally we're we're there. Uh, and so I'm really impressed of your uh, of your. Uh, wide range of experience in the investment world. You, you came from investment banking and then you grew out into, into the uh, uh, private equity. So let us a little bit, give us some background about yourself uh, and just give us a taste of your journey uh, into uh, Greenfield Partnerships. Sure, so yeah, a little bit of a different journey. I studied English literature in college oh. and um, through a few hops, uh, eventually made my way into the world of VC. Um, you know, the most significant of which uh, were in investment banking. I spent almost seven years at Goldman Sachs. And uh, following investment banking about five and a half years ago, I joined Greenfield Partners uh, while we were still under the umbrella of TPG, uh, a U.S.-based private equity. Nice. Uh, and so what brought you into the uh, investment world? Are you, you've been studying literature. That what, what attracted you to that? Um, yeah, I, I guess a series of, um, I guess, a combination of fortuitous events and following things that really interested me. Um, so meeting uh, people that uh, kind of brought me into different, uh, closer and closer to the world of finance and, and VC, and also just being really attracted to that, to that world and it being a good fit. Um, you know, these types of things, for example, investment banking, um, I think if you speak with people, you know, if you if you end up staying there for for almost seven years, which many people might argue is too long, uh, there but th there must be some kind of passion that you enjoy because the hours are pretty grueling. And I think that that's one of the things I discovered that I actually really like the work, um, and that eventually led to at least having the tooling um, that allowed me to kind of you know break into VC uh, as a growth investor, um, and have since kind of. Uh, I guess uh, keep keep improving and, and learning every day uh, with Greenfield Partners mm. now. Any notable deal that you're really proud of? Um, well, one one deal recently in the news uh, is a company called Vast Data, um, creating kind of the next generation AI data platform for the AI uh, age. Uh, that's that's one that um, 
know, we're really excited about uh, the potential for that business. And, um, you know, kind of, uh, it's, it's the type of deal that we really like because it's really on the infrastructure level uh, that enables a lot of applications on top of that. Uh, and it can be boring to some people, but we're really excited about those types of companies. Mm -hmm. And what was your involvement in that deal? Um, you know, I think it's it's a team effort, but I was one of the individuals to be fortunate enough to, to lead the deal and, and stay involved with the company since the original investment in, in 2019. Um, so really getting to see how the company's developed uh, over the last you know, four or five years has been you know amazingly instructive. Um, and it's really great to see excellence from up close. And I think that helps you as a VC when you're kind of pattern matching that excellence uh, both in terms of identifying uh, companies like that, but also in terms of helping the companies you work with, you know, knowing what excellent looks like in different phases of the business, I think is, is, can be helpful. Can you explain the different phases of early growth investment and how they relate to the go-to-market process of a company? So maybe I'll, I'll generalize it a bit more um, because I think it, it, you know, it's, it's kind of, these are types of things that we'll look at uh, for many types of businesses that might be instructive. Um, so to take a step back, I think there's different phases of investment that investors typically enter at. So you have you know, the early investors who might invest at the seed stage or the series A stage. And you might have late stage investors that invest at series D or E or pre-IPO. Um, you know, our typical investment stage will be at the series B or C stage. And we call that early growth. So what typically happens in the life cycle of a company at that point is you know, the company's managed to uh, start going to market and actually build a, a go-to-market machine. So they're starting to sell, and it's no longer just the founder selling. The founders hired um, some executives on the sales and marketing side and account executives. And um, when I say go-to-market machine, think about it as um, you know, just to name a few parts of that, right? You need, you need to be able to generate leads, you know, not just through connections, but through you know, a, a more um, repeatable way of generating leads. And there's different uh, ways of doing that and, you know, sh you know shift them through the funnel and, and have, you know, titles. This may not mean something to people, but, you know, BDRs and SDRs and uh, convert those leads and qualify them and, and uh, enable the salespeople to sell what you're providing in, in the most uh, efficient way to kind of get them, quote unquote, down the funnel towards eventually converting them into a paying customer. And, you know, at the very early stages of having built that machine and starting to see the, the health of that machine, um, you know, we call that, you know, finding, people talk about finding product market fit, which is, you know, I think in the early phase of the, of, you know, it's, the company's very agile and it's going to the customer and hearing feedback and coming back and tweaking the product. And Daniel, you probably know this a lot better than I do and have experienced it, you know, uh, more firsthand. Um, but then there's a phase that we call product market sales fit, where the sales motion enabling uh, the scaling of that product market fit that you found matches uh, the, the type of business and you've kind of defined your ICP, ideal customer profile. And so what we want to see is we want to, we want to evaluate, um, you know, what that looks like and whether, you know, pattern matches to things that we've seen where, where it's healthy. And, you know, sometimes there might be elements that maybe other investors don't appreciate, but uh, that may not look so great on the surface, but actually there's, there's a diamond in the rough there. There are key elements that are actually really healthy and the other things are more, you know, call it execution elements that maybe we can help with. 
Um, and I can talk about, I think one of the key uh, recent moves we made as a fund is bringing on an operating partner. And I could talk about that in a moment, but I've already gotten very long-winded, but that's kind of the, the, the stage at which, at which we enter. And I'll pause there just to, you know, I'll let you, Daniel, take me in any direction you- uh, I first like love to. this direction because this is really super interesting and specifically uh, for me, because my company going through that process as well. And you specifically, we're talking about a, a product market sales fit. Which is, which is, can you describe this stage and, and what are the KPIs or success metrics? Yeah, so um, to talk about KPIs, I would say let's maybe extrapolate backwards from the end goal, right? And um, it's, it's kind of unfortunate to talk in these terms, but ultimately when you're talking about you know, a business uh, that gets to the public markets and is traded, it kind of gets abstracted into the financial value of that business, right? And um, the stories and all of that, ultimately, if it, if it can't be converted into a, an attractive financial profile, and yes, taking into account certain elements of growth, et cetera, then you know, that's really what's dictating the financial value. And a lot of what ends up dictating the financial value is the financial profile of the business. And what do I mean by that? You know, you have your, your revenues and your gross profit and then your operating profit, eventually your net income. And, Probably the key engine of how attractive the financial profile is going to be is you have you have your gross margin, which in software is generally is pretty attractive. By that I mean the incremental cost of providing an additional copy is you know cost virtually zero. And you have maybe cloud costs associated with and customer service costs, but you typically high gross margin business. And what it comes down to a lot for software business is what people call sales efficiency, um, and. You know, think about efficiency in anything, right? If you think about someone who runs in a very efficient way, it ultimately comes down to the what's the ratio between input and output, right? So when someone runs efficiently, see it's beautiful, tremendous output, great speed, and very little input. They almost seem like they're not exerting any effort and they're running so quickly. That's really efficient. So I think of business, you can think about it in the same way. Um, where the input is all of what you're putting into on the sales and marketing perspective. And the output is the new business that you're generating in terms of new revenue or, you know, typically in software, it's called ARR, annual recurring revenue. Um, and so the ratio between those two numbers is really important. And I think that what we've seen is that at scale, when companies become really big, you know, changing that ratio uh, becomes very difficult because when you double click and you get out of these abstracted terms, it talks about, you know, what happens is you have an account executive who's used to having, you know, a sales engineer and a BDR and an SDR. So there's a lot of effort that's going into creating a sale. And when you have to pare that down at scale, it's very difficult. And so what we try to focus on is how do we a, identify places where there's a very efficient motion uh, in terms of the ratio between, let's say, the sales and marketing spend and the new ARR being produced and also, where can we maybe help? Uh, where are there easy wins in order to change the ratio when the company's a lot younger and more nimble? And sometimes you might hear the term magic number. So magic number is that KPI, which says, okay, how much new ARR have you generated this quarter? Typically, you offset, you say, oh, what was the previous quarter's S&M? Because that's when most of the effort went in. And the ratio between that number uh, is the magic number. And you want a magic number above 0.7 or so, that's a typical, and, and there's a reason why that is, but probably too much detail for this podcast. Yeah, yeah. What is the secret sauce for, for those that managing to get their, to the right KPI and ROI? Yeah, that's, that's a very good question. Um, 
And it kind of touches on something that I, I mentioned earlier and I'll, I'll expand on now, uh, which is the hiring of our operating partners. So we were very, very fortunate to welcome Nir Goldstein, who was previously VP Sales at Monday.com, uh, one of Israel's premier SaaS companies and maybe one of the more the premier SaaS companies globally, uh, really known for their sales efficiency, uh, which they've done an amazing job on. And Nir was a, was a critical element of helping them create that. And, you know, one of the things we noticed as a fund was that you have, you know, former bankers like myself that, yeah, we could crunch numbers all day and we have a head of data that can actually help you bring your, your data in from your Salesforce and HubSpot into a data warehouse like a Snowflake and surface it through a BI tool like a Tableau. But eventually it's, okay, well, how do you, and, and you can say, oh, well, you're not efficient in this and this and this metric and we benchmarks from across the ecosystem. But then the question is, well, well how do you create that sales efficiency? And I think that... Um, what NIR brings is the ability to uh, really diagnose on a tactical level all the different elements of that go-to-market uh, machine that I identified earlier. You're get generating leads and taking them through the funnel. He's someone that can listen to calls on Gong, which you know records calls of salespeople, see how what people are doing, are people being enabled properly. Uh, what types of leads are you know if salespeople bringing in? What are they are they better bringing bigger leads or smaller leads? Are they bringing you know are they, are they good at closing your ideal customer profile or not? What does the handoff look like between marketing and sales and then customer success? All these tactical things where um, I think what differentiates uh, companies a lot, um, I, and, I, and I should say a lot of it is product and thesis around the product. But assuming that those things are good, it's what does excellent look like in a go-to-market machine? And I think that's something that is lacking in the ecosystem. And um, I think is where, you know, we as a fund are trying to provide value by, you know, showing what A, A-plus looks like, uh, where otherwise sometimes people may not be able to differentiate between what a, what a B-plus uh, go-to-market motion looks like versus what an A-plus one looks mm -hmm. like. And where do you see most companies fail? Um, yeah, that's also, that's a good question. I think, you know, probably the inverse of that. Um, and, you know, look, I think, um, the default state, unfortunately for startups is failure, yeah. right? If you cannot, there's a, there, you're constant, there's a tremendous power of gravity pulling against startups at all stages, uh, towards failure or, you know, it sounds harsh, but, uh, you know, maybe there's a better way of, of, of phrasing that. But it's hard. It's hard work. Uh, my wife is a founder, um, and, and so I, I definitely get to experience that from up close. And um, and you know, being with these companies, that if you don't uh, rise above the noise in your market and ensure that everything is done, you know, in an A A plus way, extremely tightly, extremely well done, integrated, and everyone's rowing in the right direction. You know, um, you know, chaos can reign and things can start to fall apart and you start to find yourself playing defense rather than offense, right? And, and, and once you start, you know, plugging holes because this wasn't good enough and that wasn't good enough, it's very hard to recover that momentum and start playing offense. And so you really want to be able to see around the corner, identify things that, you know, might break six months from now rather than having them break and then start to repair because, um, you know, there's a lot of momentum in this business and you can find yourself losing that kind of growth offense-minded momentum and find yourself on the defense. I think, uh, you know, that's what some of the better companies are, you know, seeing around the corner a little bit better and, and identifying weaknesses before they have a chance to manifest themselves mm -hmm. in the business. Yeah, it's, it's down to, eventually down to 
hard work, patience, uh, and really understand your market, provide the best product. Uh, but then, yeah, you need to go found, found your, yourself, your, your audience. That's the most important thing. I, I definitely did not spend enough time on the answer on product. Uh, so that gets a special call out. I think, you know, where, where, um, where we try to add value is on the go-to-market, but obviously product uh, continues to be a very important part of that equation as well. Uh, what is the investment criteria that a green, green field going to go after? Uh, what, what, what companies would you say yes to and why? Yeah, so we, we try to be pretty focused. Um, and one of the things that might be instructive to other people is to think about a fund that, you know, we are raising money from institutions uh, around the world. And so, uh, you know, just like, you know, companies are raising from us, you know, we're, we have a product that we're selling uh, to the investor ecosystem. And so we have to really tightly define what that product is. And I think it's a very healthy uh, part of the process for funds. And so, you know, what we sell to our investors is saying, look, we're going to be very focused and we're going to try to be you know, world-class investors in our focus area. And that focus area is, like I said, that kind of series BC stage, really focusing on the challenges that entrepreneurs face at those stages of the business and building the infrastructure of our fund to support those founders. And probably 70% of what we do is in within specific verticals like cybersecurity, data infrastructure, IT infrastructure, and we'll do, um, you know, with the remaining 30%, we'll do some, some FinTech, we'll, we've done some consumer, and we'll do other things, but we want to make, make sure that we have the ability to, to help uh, the founders uh, that we invest in to the extent possible. And that's kind of how we define the focus area. And, and um, you know, so usually from a metrics perspective, that'll be starting from about three to $5 million in, in revenue or ARR up to about 20 million. And from, you know, above that stage, you know, typically um, that's what, you know, we call ourselves early growth. That's more kind of traditional growth. It's a bigger check size. It's a later stage. Um, and that would usually be a different class of investor to come in and what, you know, would typically be a series D or E. In, in your, in your um, stage, what is the check size? So our, our check size range is typically 15 to $30 million. Uh, we can flex down, flex up on a, a special case-by-case -case basis, but that's our mm -hmm. sweet spot. And do you do a secondary as well on your... Um, what, we've, what we've found that works for us well is to do primary investments, uh, lead rounds. So that would mean you know, taking a board seat and so that we're incentivized to bring the entire resources of the fund to bear for that mm. business. Okay. It's easier now to, to go out and build a company using AI machines, your marketing machine, development. Uh, do you think that those new companies that can, can replicate an existing company, an existing large organization that may be a little bit less uh, you know, innovative, but still are uh, pretty good, do you think they can be uh, competing by, by price and eventually outperforming? I think that there's definitely been a productivity boost. Uh, a few things probably to say about this. I don't want to get too long-winded, but um, you know, one thing I think one the, with AI, I think one of the things we're seeing is that actually big companies are, are leveraging it pretty well, um, which is unlike something like cloud, which required a much bigger lift from big companies to take advantage of. Uh, big companies are actually doing a pretty decent job of leveraging AI. Uh, so that's one. At the same time, uh, 
you know, I think there are you know, big companies that maybe are providing a service that is, you know, relatively easily replicable software that have made, uh, you know, a lot of money by being, you know, really, you know, big player, but don't really have any network effects. So there's no real reason for them to necessarily be, you know, 80% market share and charging a lot of money. And someone could come in and, and, and offer the same, essentially for 10 cents on a dollar. Those companies are probably going to be uh, disrupted. Um, and one other thing I think, you know, there's a, there's a bit of a narrative around, you know, what, are the companies going to raise a lot of, you know, are there going to be like super lean companies created? I think in the early stages, potentially, you can kind of have more, pro, uh, you know, be more productive. But I think that you know, when you get to the go to market and there's just so much noise that you need to typically spend, unless your product is so much better, um, you need to spend to, to get the awareness out there. Um, and so, so you either have to be so much better from a tech perspective, in which case you can't just have four people coding with productivity because it's highly replicable and you can't get the tech differentiation, or you actually have to spend the money on S&M. So, so either way, I think you are going to have to, you know, people are going to have to spend a bit more money than, than uh, I think what's maybe being hoped for. Uh, and that, that comes back to, I think, a lot of that, you know, the, the go-to-market motion, getting a product in front of people, articulating the message, um, I think it's something those are really important principles that are going to continue to be uh, mostly true uh, even through the cycle. Yeah, I tend to agree with that because to build a sales machine, it costs a lot of money. You need to invest in SDR, salespeople, marketing, and everything, CSM. So obviously people cost money uh, and you really can't replace them with it still today yeah, with, with an AI machine. So... Let's see. Maybe within three to five years, it's gonna be a different story. We're gonna uh, gonna replicate. You're gonna be machine replicating us and doing a podcast for us and and doing a sales sales uh, sales calls and so on and so forth. Huh? <laughs> yeah, well that you have to speak to an early stage investor yeah. for that or the founders. That's too far down the field and too too creative, probably. Uh, you know. How do you see the? investment environment changing in light of the high interest rates now in the markets uh, and obviously the economy slow down? Yeah, uh, good question. I think, um, you know, I, I try not to get, um, you know, overcomplicate things. Uh, you know, rates obviously have, you know, dictate a lot. Um, you know, when rates are high, uh, you know, the, the simplest way of looking at it is, is people have an alternative. Uh, where they can make a decent return. And so the bar is higher on alternative investments and you know, VC falls into that bucket. And so that puts an impact on how much capital is being allocated to VC. And, and so it has an impact on, you know, maybe some VC funds aren't gonna make it through the cycle. Other VC funds need to be smaller and it puts a bit of pressure on the asset class from capital perspective. And that's what pre puts pressure on deployment. Um, but that's kind of the, the macro in view, I think from micro out, um, great companies are created throughout every cycle. And uh, you know, we're fortunate enough to be in a position where uh, we have a lot, of, um, a lot of fresh capital to deploy uh, from our newest fund. And we're really excited about this vintage and the types of companies that are getting founded now. Uh, there's big shifts afoot, as you've alluded to. 
And uh, we want to be active. And we think, you know, we don't have to invest in the full macro environment of every co company out there. We need to find those, you know, three or four companies a year that we are, uh, you know, super excited about. Um, and, and then just get behind those companies as, as much as possible. Exactly. Just make you a, a super laser targeted correction product. Uh, we about the latest trend in tech, uh, such as AI, blockchain, biotech, anything, biotech, anything that you receive from your existing portfolio or from the one that I haven't seen yet. Obviously, AI is a big one. We're following it. I would say, um, from our, you know, in terms of the types of AI companies we're interested in, and uh, also what I think Israeli. There's some more interesting Israeli founders coming through who are seem to be getting this right. Is a, around kind of the infrastructure component. So there was this, um, there was a space uh, that was called ML Ops, machine learning operations. That if so, you can find our website. We did a whole research on it, and you know that basically AI, you know, the emergence of a generative AI just kind of blew up that whole space. And there's a you know new way of a lot of new things coming through. But I think Israeli founders were, were strong there, and I think they'll be a key part of what that new version of MLOps or however we want to, you want to call it will look like. And that's an area which, um, again, I think it's kind of maybe boring and you know not sexy to some people, but we we really like it as an enabling infrastructure technology. And you know, at the application layer, it's still a little bit tougher to call uh, with AI companies. And then you know, at the very base, uh, you know, LLM. You know, model level. I think that's uh, those are looks like there's going to be some big winners that you know, we're probably not going to be invested in. So that kind of middle middle of the sandwich infrastructure layer is where we tend to gravitate. But it feels like that the, the Israeli startup ecosystem Israeli are a little bit late to the game of, for the AI. Can you agree with that? Yeah, that was uh, that was a little bit the narrative for a bit. But I think everyone was a little bit late to AI. You know. Who is doing, you know, large language model technology, other than OpenAI and a few others? So it was very, you know, and I think six to eight months ago, you looked around and and there was kind of seemed like Israelis got caught flat-footed. But I think everyone was like that, and now we're starting to see a lot of interesting companies. Uh, I think founders here are very talented. And I think they've figured some stuff out, and I think we're going to see some really interesting companies emerge in the yeah, next few sure, years. Sure yeah, um, Okay, we're getting to the end. Uh, let me, first of all, get some uh, what would you recommend um, early growth stage uh, startups uh, before they're going and uh, looking for funding for their growth stage. One of the things that, that we've learned as a, as a fund, and uh, I didn't get into it, but, but we were part of a platform and we didn't have to do kind of our own fundraising and things like that. We spun out at the end of 2019. And um, you know, one of the things we learned is, is really try to understand you know, what, what the product you're selling is and um, you know, the, the mindset of who you're selling that product to. Um, and so I think that there is a little bit of a, a nuance to raising an early growth round that maybe didn't exist uh, in, the, in the earlier stages. I think um, the early stage, you're selling a vision um, and, and it doesn't mean that the vision goes away, I think, but the vision you know, needs to be supported by additional 
you know, signals that are coming from, from the business. Like, and if you think about it from, a, from an investor's perspective, um, if, you're, if your deck and message is exactly the same in Series B as it was in Series A, then why should a Series B investor, you know, give you higher valuation or pay more for the equity than a Series A investor? You know, what, what cards have turned over that provide that de-risking for the investor to come in? And it's usually metrics and, and proof, business proof points that support that vision uh, more so than was the case in, let's say, the Series A. And so I think just understanding that nuance and, and um, you know, maybe the, the, the types of, uh, uh, of the type of pitch that worked in the seed in Series A might have to be tweaked for Series B and, and having those conversations. You know, it sometimes might help also just have friendly conversations with people who, who invest at that stage who you might, might be in your network before you actually go and pitch and kind of tweak, tweak it. Um, but, uh, but probably the most important thing is to just build a great business. And, uh, you know, what we find is, you know, we try to find those great businesses and we're the ones usually inbounding those companies rather than the, the other way so around. So in, in other words, if they come to you with uh, okay sales uh, funnel, um, you can go and take, take it and to take this product market fit to market product sales fit, right? That's, that's what are going to help uh, to increase and double their metrics, right? Yeah, that finding, you know, I guess providing proof points that that product market sales fit uh, exists and that, um, you know, there's predictability because a lot of the capital is going to go to putting it into sales and marketing and you want to be able to have confidence that it's going to translate into revenues at the right rate, uh, the right efficiency that we spoke about earlier. So anything you can do to kind of help, you know, show that and, and um, give supporting evidence to that would be helpful. Beautiful. Okay, this is the last uh, but not the least. Um, can you give us a recommendation of... Uh, a podcast or a book you're reading and a fun fact about yourself. All right. Well, you know, I, I thought you'd maybe give me a heads up with this. So I got <laughs> to think on my, uh, on my feet here. Um, a podcast, you know, I think um, I like uh, 20 VC. Um, I think he does a good job. Yeah. Harry Stebbings, he does a very good job of interviewing interesting people. And I think kind of for, it sounds like for the audience that you're targeting, Probably a good idea to get also a lot of uh, information. Um, that's uh, at least in the VC. There's other you know, non-VC podcasts. And a fun fact about myself: um, I um, saw my wife on TV. As uh, that was how I met her, and I somehow managed to to track her down. So that's maybe a wow. fun fact. And now, three kids later, uh, we're we're just a regular, boring <laughs> family. But it started in a pretty pretty cool way. Amazing! Wow, that's a this is a really fun fact. This is this is a new. There you go. More more details <laughs> yes. over beer, Daniel. Next time we uh, we meet up. Brilliant. So, yeah. and there you have it: valuable insights and advice from Avery Schwartz. I hope you found this interview informative and helpful in your own journey to startup success. If you enjoyed this episode, share it with your friends. Subscribe to it. And keep watching for more episodes of this series and get more valuable tips on how to build, grow, and raise funding for a startup. So big thank you, Andrew Schwartz, for your, for your talking here and sharing knowledge with us. Next time, keep talking about the members.